Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 117. I'm Chris Hoff, and thank you for listening. Today we got a great one for you. We are talking to Jessica Dorr about tarot and therapy, and I've been wanting to have a conversation like this for a while, and I'm very excited to be bringing our conversation with Jessica to you. Um, I've been a I don't know, fan's not the right word, but I do get regular tarot readings. I have my own deck, a fountain deck. It sits in my office, and I'm regularly pulling cards, and I have found a lot of value in it. And so I'm always interested in people that are working with it in creative and innovative ways, and Jessica Dorr is exactly that. And so I'm excited to bring this conversation with you to you. So, but before we get to Jessica, I have a quick announcement for those of you in the Southern California area or who might be in the Southern California area in early August, I am going to be uh, participating in the Printed Matter LA Art Book Fair with Thick Press. And I'm going to be there all weekend, Friday, August 11th through Sunday, August 13th at the Geffen Contemporary at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Uh, it's going to be a great event, and we are going to be, of course, promoting the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping. I'm going to have Radical Therapist uh, t-shirts there, um, stickers. If you want to get some free swag, come to uh, come come visit me. Come say hello. And we're actually in Thick Press. We're putting out a little. I guess a kind of a pre-zine to the encyclopedia so you can get a taste of what that's going to look like and that's going to and you, and that's all you're going to uh, be able to you know you're only going to be able to get those there so probably going to be a collector's item for sure and for those of you that missed out when we uh, JD Arrigo and I put out our Beyond Critique Composition and Curiosity and Therapy our book emerging project with Thick Press it actually sold out. Thank you for that. Uh, but Thick Press is going to be making available a few more, I think like 10 copies of that. So I will have copies of Beyond Critique, Composition, and Curiosity, and Therapy that I will be giving away. So come get that too. So there's going to be lots of stuff. So if you're in the Southern California area, um, come visit me. Come visit me at the Printed Matter LA Art Book Fair. Friday, August 11th, Sunday to August 13th. Uh, for those that uh, want a mask, it's Sunday from 11 to uh, 1 p.m. will be the masked hours. So uh, come visit me. Come hang out. Come get some free stuff, uh, some free Radical Therapist stuff, and, and some free sneak peeks to the Encyclopedia of Radical Helping. So that will be awesome. So I hope to see some of you there. Give me a heads up, too, if you're coming. Let me know. Um, the Radical Therapist at gmail.com. Anyway, okay, let's get to our guest. Uh, very excited about this conversation. Uh, Jessica Dorr is a licensed social worker and writer. Prior to earning her master's degree in social work, she spent nearly a decade in self-help and psychology publishing, including editorial roles at New Harbinger Publications and the popular psychology website Psych Central. She has facilitated non-clinical peer support groups with tarot 
and currently works as an associate therapist at the Therapy Center in Philadelphia. Her work with Tarot has been featured by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, Vogue, Teen Vogue, Oprah's Daily, and more. Dor is the author of Tarot for Change, Using the Cards for Self-Care, Acceptance, and Growth, and the best-selling Substack newsletter offerings. So without further ado, let's meet Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. I appreciate you making the time, and I'm excited for this conversation. I've you know, just have always had a, you know, I'm always, I, I'm a regular tarot user myself. So, um, so it's nice to have you here to get more perspective on what you're doing with tarot and therapy and all that kind of stuff. So uh, maybe I'd, I'd like to start by asking you how you came to the practice of tarot and was it tarot and then therapy or therapy then tarot or how did, how did you get interested yeah. Um, well, I always start by saying that as a kid, my mom, who is a, a clinical social worker, um, now retired, but was a clinical social worker her whole career, um, she had tarot cards. She had the Rider Waite Smith deck. Um, and she wasn't like a serious reader, but she had them and she would pull them out and stuff. And I uh, really had no interest as a kid or as a teenager in tarot. And then it wasn't until I moved to uh, the Bay Area and I was working at a self-help book publisher called New Harbinger um, that I had some friends over, some of my colleagues from New Harbinger, and uh, they brought tarot cards and we were all just kind of hanging out and drinking wine and whatever and uh, pulling cards. And uh, somebody gave me a reading that was just really blew my mind and that piqued my interest. And I was like, wow, you know, there's something to this. And so um, I got a deck for myself and I started just looking up the meanings of the cards. I got Rachel Pollock's 78 Degrees of Wisdom and had the little booklet that came with the deck. I had the Rider Waite Smith deck because that was the deck that, uh, you know, that my mom had. I had some familiarity with it. And I didn't really have interest in being a therapist, but I was working at New Harbinger, which is a, they're one of the like, bigger sort of independent publishers of uh, evidence-based uh, behavioral therapies primarily. And so I was learning a lot about ACT and DBT and CBT and my day job there. And um, my job actually was initially I was a publicist publicizing uh, like the professional manuals, you know, for the ACT therapists and DBT therapists and that kind of thing, like sort of protocols for how to treat certain <laughs> DSM Hmm. Uh, disorders and stuff like that so I was like learning all these things as a lay person and then I was like going home and I'd pull cards at night and I would see like some of the ideas that I had been reading about in my day job uh, from these different therapies about you know the interaction of thoughts feelings and behavior um, in the in the visual metaphors and Pamela Coleman Smith's drawings and the Rider Waite Smith and so there was a connection there and then it was later I was at New Harbinger for six years and and Toward the end, I started having a lot of uh, like wrist and arm pain from sitting at a desk and writing so much on the computer. So I was like, man, I got to make a career change. What will I do? What will I do? And I was going back and forth between being a, a bread baker, <laughs> a sourdough baker and uh, being a therapist. And eventually, I, after a few years of going back and forth between the two, I decided to go to grad school and did an MSW and um yeah, but and then I mean, I was writing about tarot, I was doing a lot of stuff on social media with tarot and 
did a little bit of tarot stuff clinically as a graduate student. Um, and then, yeah, now I'm, now I'm where I am. Yeah. Right. And I understand you are training in narrative therapy with Jill Friedman and Jean Combs. And I'm really curious how this training has you viewing your tarot practice and meaning making, et cetera. Yeah. Yes. I am training with Jill Friedman and Jean Combs, which has been awesome. Um, and I think the, like talking a little bit about the background of how I came to the training might be like a little more reflective of like this broader journey of meaning making that I've been on with, with tarot and, and just meaning making in general. Um, when I first started working with cards and I kind of touched on this already, I was sort of doing like free association, meaning making, like I was reading interpretations in books about the cards and, or online or whatever. Um, and then I was saying, huh, that reminds me a lot of, experiential avoidance or emotion regulation or distress tolerance, you know, some of these ideas that I was learning about in that, in that context at New Harbinger. Um, but it was really very free association is the best way that I would describe the way that I was doing meaning making work. And I started writing about those things publicly and connecting those dots. And um, eventually I, I wrote a book uh, called Tarot for Change, using the cards for self-care, acceptance and growth. And um before the book came out and after the book came out, I started getting very critical of, of myself and my approach. And one of the big critiques that I was having was like, I felt like I hadn't spent enough time studying like the, the history and the context of like the, the more traditional interpretations, you know, like the, the British and French occultists and, you know, Arthur Wade and Aleister Crowley and all this kind of stuff. And, and, but I really struggled to like read anything that those people were writing because they're, it is like old European white men from a different place and time. It's like, what do we have in common? We don't share worldviews. I don't. And so I kind of like had this in the background, like sort of feeling like, did I spend enough, did I do enough diligence with sort of, I, I sort of had done all this creative meaning making, connecting the cards with these like contemporary psychological concepts, but um, sort of like worried that I hadn't more you know quote traditional interpretations and after the book came out I was my book came out I was very like disillusioned with psychology altogether and I was sort of like I, I had done my master's at that point and I had got my social work license but I was not sure if I wanted to go into therapy at all because I just started feeling really critical about things I had taken this class that started reading Fanon and, and hmm. Ignacio Martin Burrow and just people that were really changing my mind about psychology and so I started like shifting into theology and religion and started reading all these like theologians. And it was through that exploration that I encountered a theologian named Shelley Rambo at BU. And she has this book called Spirit and Trauma where she's deconstructing the Christian resurrection story. And so that was my introduction to Derrida and what it looks like to take something old that has problematic aspects to it and sort of like respectfully go into it, do a very, very close reading, and through that close reading, open up to something that goes beyond it. Mm. And I was like, whoa, like this as a way to make meaning, this is this really beats the free association method. I'm feeling this is like really a way to pay respect, but also to, to go beyond. And um, several months later, after I read her book, I started reading Jill and Jean's book, which I had, but I hadn't read, The Narrative Therapy, Social Construction of Preferred Realities. Right. And when I started reading that, I was like, oh, my God, people in the psychotherapy field care about philosophy and care about politics. And uh, I, I was really excited about how they were using deconstruction and talking about Derrida and post-structuralism, obviously, and 
Um, so I enrolled in the training with them and I've been, you know, just like uh, trying to apply what I'm learning from them, this post-structural worldview, um, not only in clinical work that I'm doing with people in therapy, but also just in my writing. I do a lot of interpretation of old stories, obviously the symbols of tarot using this sort of more constructivist framework. Um, yeah, because I just like, I've had a lot of concerns about using like what I would loosely call old stories or like the symbols in tarot, like a lot of these things have this really problematic imagery. There's all, especially like really rigid gender binaries, just as one simple example. And what I've gathered through like post-structuralism and deconstruction is that like there is a way to work with problematic stories um, and symbols that comes from a place of like maybe these stories themselves, as in working with people or or working with an old legend or something, um, they come from a place maybe of having a little bit less awareness of like the power dynamics that are at play, but like through working with them, um, you can actually like struggle a little bit to like get beyond to expose the problematic stories to their future, like quoting um, John Caputo there, or like hmm. just unpacking and questioning and looking for what's implied but not named and, you know, all those sorts of things. So that's that's where it's taken me. I I, I could talk about it for, yeah, right. but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. Yeah. So you've read Caputo, Caputo too, right? Just a little bit. Oh, I, yeah. I, I'm really very new to like yeah. philosophy and I, yeah. I'm trying to get my feet wet, but yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he, has, he has a book on hermeneutics. That's like a really simple yeah. thing for people who are not philosophy people that want to know a little bit more about philosophy. Right. Sort of, yeah. And sort of a kind of a postmodern theologian in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, thank you for that. Um, uh, in the past, well, I, I'm, you have me thinking, like in the past, I interviewed Scott Miller about his important article, How Psychotherapy Lost Its Magic, The Art of Healing in an Age of Science. And in it, him, he and uh, Mark Hubble, I think it was, um, they wrote, clinicians will have, will have to embody what the majority plainly yearn for, a realm of possibilities for healing and change, unbound by convention and traditional science. And it seems you're doing exactly this. And I wonder if you can share how you, your work traverses the psychological and the spiritual and steps out of convention. Yeah, thanks for this question. Um, and also for, I mean, what an incredible compliment, um, kind, generous thing to say uh, about what I'm doing. I, yeah. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I've been interested in the tension between science and spirituality really since I got my start in uh, at New Harbinger, which is this very sort of like orthodox evidence-based, you know, uh, everything. That's that's the whole thing at Harbinger. It's like evidence-based self-help. That's what they do. And so I was working when I was there with Steve Hayes and Kelly Wilson and Kirk Strassel, who are like the founders of acceptance and commitment therapy. And they're really heavily working inside this discourse of evidence-based practice. And so they've had to, you know, and they're for their own reasons, like sort of distance themselves from anything that might appear uh, unique to that. Like, despite many of them being like, I think very spiritually inclined people, um, but I'd be in meetings with them or at conference dinners or whatever, and then sort of go back home to my house or my hotel room if we're at a conference and be pulling cards and I have like crystals around and whatever. And I'd be like seeing all these connections and, you know, between their ideas, these empirically supported, really serious, you know, things about behavior change and 
you know, relational frame theory and whatever else. And like, I'm seeing those things in the cards of all places. And like, that really like tickled me and I couldn't talk to any of them about it, but I sort of secretly like held on to those things. And as a millennial, I also like, I had access to social media and understanding how to use social media. So when I left New Harbinger, I actually started doing a daily card pull on Twitter where I would do like today's card. And then it was, uh, it would be a card and then like a little like tarot reading or whatever. And um, like a, like a horoscope type thing. And I was pairing, um, you know, ideas that I had learned about at my time at New Harbinger from, you know, these evidence-based self-help stuff uh, with uh, an image of a tarot card. And I think there was like a tension there that like made it sort of a hit because I was pairing these two things that were not expected to go together. You know, you have evidence-based self-help ideas or like skills or concepts with divination, right? It's like no one who was looking for a tarot reading on Twitter was expecting to get sort of therapized and no one was looking for a sort of practical self-help type advice on Twitter of all places, you know, about how to stop avoiding sadness or whatever it was, you know, they were expecting to get, um, was expecting to get that in a form of like a vague tarot reading on Twitter. And so there was something like kind of tricky about it. And I think because of that tension of combining those two things in an unexpected way, it really struck a chord with people. Mm. And this was before like Instagram and TikTok therapists really became a thing. And I have that as a note, because I know you've talked about that. And I also, you know, have my own feelings about it as well. And it was something that uh, I ended up like feeling kind of weird about after a while and started getting really critical of and I stopped doing the daily cards for that reason and sort of transitioned into more long form writing but I'm still really interested in doing sort of like trickster things with convention in both of the fields that I sort of uh tentatively claim which I guess are psychotherapy and tarot even though I don't really feel like I belong to either world um and I think one of the more recent ways I've been doing that is through uh, something that I'm calling uh, divinational interviews. And those are one-on-one -on -one sessions. It's not a clinical offering. It's not a therapy offering, uh, but the name is a riff on uh, motivational interviewing uh, in case that's not obvious, um, which like motivational interviewing is like, doesn't even really, in my view, doesn't really even pretend not to be sort of coercive toward uh, predetermined ideas of what constitutes health in a lot of cases. And, mm -hmm. So instead of someone coming to me with a question as they might with a traditional sort of tarot reading, and then I'm going to turn the cards over and tell them things. Instead, I interview them about their area of interest in the divinational interview. And instead of coming up with questions based on sort of like my own situatedness or my own like um, whatever expertise, I generate questions through the chance process of divination, pulling a card at random and coming up with something to ask. And I, 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 this sort of comes from this like intense struggle that I have and have continued to have with the power dynamics that are inherent in being a therapist. And even with narrative therapy and like all the ways that narrative works to undermine power imbalances, there's still this element of like, that I feel of like, and I, I'd love to, I should talk to Jean and Jill about this because I'm sure they would have interesting things to say about it. But like, I have this feeling like I'm learning tricks that the participant is not aware of. And then like, I have a hard time like reckoning with that, like with aspects of consent or like, transparency and it's probably like my own neuroses more than anything but it, it still bothers me and so I like the idea of in something like a divinational interview it's sort of like seeking to like undermine whatever tricks I might have up my sleeve that I've acquired through this like very expensive and privileged process of professionalization and I also know this is a little bit at odds with the narrative idea that like people get to choose their stories and and um 
that's meant to sort of offset the the force of just kind of like certain stories that we have are there by chance or convenience instead no we can be intentional but i think i still have this like very real intellectual and spiritual and political interest in chance processes like divination as a way to sort of thwart the like personal agenda that is always like influenced by a larger political agenda at the end of the day and so anyway that's a a little bit of how i'm uh kind of moving between those worlds and and trying to find ways to be playful and which is a constant struggle yeah i appreciate that yeah you have me thinking that that could be a whole podcast what you were just talking about too so (laughs) some of those ideas around like narrative and uh, the tricks and uh, and the idea of making making space for chance is you know really fascinating for me too. So that's uh, thank you. Um, have you received any criticism for the work you do? I'm sure that I have. Um, I certain places where I would get criticism like Amazon book reviews that I avoid um, just mm-hmm. because I'm afraid. Um, one of the main like things that comes to mind for me with like receiving criticism is really from like tarot people who yeah. would like on the early days and I would post the daily cards on Twitter, like someone would say, you know, that's not what the card means or something like that. And that, that was before I knew like what post-structuralism was. And I, and I wish I, because I was a social work uh, graduate student and you don't learn anything about philosophy or theory really in, in MS programs, not, not in mine at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really wish I like had had some of that language about, you know, just like processes of meaning making uh, that I've learned about through post-structural explorations that I could have sort of clapped back with something clever about <laughs> about meaning as constructed and whatever. But uh, I didn't. But I, no, I think most of the criticism really comes from myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, just right. the, how sort of relentless I am about. Um, yeah. A, a lot of the things that I've already touched on. Yeah. I know something about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have said people do tend to seek tarot readings when they're in uncertain times. And, and so how do you, and you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but how do you work with uncertainty versus certainty, advice giving, personal agency, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I think in part because I do worry so much about power, even in the early days when I started doing tarot readings just for friends and stuff, I, I really was clear that I wanted to do work that was more, um, around exploration and reflection and 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 eventually like I came more to this idea of like the value in complexifying something rather than simplifying or you know try to solve a problem or a question because I think I mean it it really is rare to talk to someone who's like willing to just like be in an uncertain space without needing to fix or solve right. and it's yeah. it's so so rare and and it's so hard to do like even though this is something I feel like I've been practicing for a long time, it's something I've been trying to cultivate as a skill through tarot reading before I was ever working as a therapist. It's still, it's so, so hard. And obviously, I mean, I'm a new therapist, so I give myself a lot of grace there, but the interesting thing with tarot reading, it's been kind of like an ideal space to practice that because with the format, um, even more than therapy, like there is a relational expectation in a tarot reading that you're going to tell someone their fortune, you know, like <laughs> they're going to come to me, they're going to ask me and I'm going to tell them, you know, and so there's actually this like, there's this force that like, I have to kind of um, push against all the time. And it's kind of thrilling, like just to sort of, but, but interestingly, like, 
and I think people would be surprised to know that even in a tarot reading, like people actually are very receptive to not leaving with an answer if they feel like they've been really heard. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe there's something in there around, maybe they're not feeling as alone in their problem anymore as they did. Um, someone else is carrying that story with them and is carrying the story and can be trusted to carry the story because they really took the time to understand the little details about it that other people maybe were not taking the time to understand. Um, I feel certain like there's something really relieving about being witnessed in the complicatedness of what you're going through and not having someone trying to make it seem simpler than it is. Like, I actually feel like there's something really like, maybe this is harsh, but like really irreverent and even degrading in the experience of like, telling someone something that's super, super hard for you and like having them treat it like it's simple. Like, you know, I just, there's something about that that just drives me nuts. Like <laughs> as a the person on the receiving end, and I definitely don't want to do that with anyone. I think there's a lot of creative ways to respond to problems or big questions or wounds, even, you know, beyond fixing or answering or curing. And that's where my interest has been for years really. And it seems so simple, but as you know, as you know, as anybody knows who like does, helping work or sits with people and it's so hard it's so it's yeah. so hard to do and uh yeah i really try to do that with with tarot and and have been surprised by how as i said receptive people have been to not walking away with with a clear answer i've had very few i mean i've read tarot for hundreds if not thousands of people probably hundreds and not thousands maybe like a thousand and some but um very, very, very few cases where someone is really insistent on getting a clear answer. And yeah. that's probably because people kind of know what I do and that's not what I'm here to do, you know? Right. But, right. And I really appreciate that, uh, that people, what you said about something, the people not needing the answer when they feel felt heard or understood in, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, you, you said that you incorporate tarot, uh, into, work with people that are, it's like a facilitating of synchronicity. And I, I understand you work with synchronicity, but not from a Jungian perspective. And I'm wondering if you could say more about how you view synchronicity. Yeah, I really love this question. And it opened up, it opens up a lot for me um, to thinking about that. I, I don't, somebody asked me recently about this facilitating synchronicity thing. And I don't even remember where I remember saying it, but I don't remember where. And when the person brought it up, I was like, Oh yeah, cool. I, <laughs> it's a cool idea. I like, I like it, but I also don't know if I like or resonate with the idea of synchronicity, which I guess I'll say a little bit more about. So the Jungian idea is sort of like, it's this event where the internal and external are syncing up. Mm -hmm. And that there's something that happens when that, you know, that you're thinking about somebody and then they call you. And this was like, wow, you know, it's this experience of the self in this like larger context and things that are maybe not as distinct as they seem or something like that. And that idea is like really rooted in discourses of the self as bounded and individual and a sort of separateness of person and environment. And these days, like I really don't work much with the idea of synchronicity, but what does come to mind is the word intensity hmm. and Intensity is a funny word because it's definitely, for me, a very overused word. I say like, oh, that's intense a lot um, when I'm maybe not being as good of a listener as I should be uh, when somebody is sharing something with me. But like, um, I think about intensity as like the tension created in a meeting of contrasting forces, like through difference, really, right, where they both get to 
be there and one doesn't need to dominate over any of the others. It's just like hanging in there with these things that are like, and I'm kind of drawing on the work of uh, Brian Masumi, who's a philosopher and that I really like. And there's something intense that happens when something that's perceived as external bumps up against something that's perceived as internal. For instance, in a tarot reading, if you pull the tower and you're experiencing, which is like often read as a card about rupture. And for those who aren't aware who might be listening, um, and you happen to be also be going through like a major life change. Like there's an intensity that happens in a moment like that, where those things are meeting up internal and external. And that intensity is something really sacred. It like can activate all kinds of uh, things, you know, potentials and openings. And I think both the ideas of synchronicity in the Jungian sense and intensity in this other sense, they both have to do with like putting the self in relationship with the world in such a way that increases the potentialities in a moment which might not be visible otherwise. And this kind of creates openings for true events. You know, um, Isabel Stengers talks about an event as like something that a real event would be like something that would not have been able to happen otherwise, you know? Um, and I think of like Derrida's idea as well, of like the real future as that, which is totally unpredictable, the other who comes without my being able to anticipate their arrival. It's those moments of like surprise resonance mm -hmm. of things coming together in a way that you weren't expecting but that creates a certain uh, degree of opportunity that wasn't there before. And I guess like the only nitpicking thing is like, I maybe I wouldn't call it synchronicity now, if I were to say what I'm facilitating, maybe facilitating intensity. I don't know if I'd call it that either, but the word sync like seems like it implies like an accordance or like a sameness in a way that like is not what I'm going for. It's like much more about like the difference and the sort of the contrast that like creates something kind of like, well, there's like power there. Um, anyway, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> my rabbit hole on synchronicity. I appreciate I it. Thank you. Uh, and now let's go to metaphor and symbol. You've written that metaphor and symbol have been such important routes toward understanding for you. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah. Um, thanks. So I studied writing uh, as an undergrad. I was a communication major in English. Um, and I was a poet, you know, as a teen and young adult. And um, I, so, I, you know, I've been like very interested in language um, and metaphor. And then I was introduced to the therapeutic use of metaphor at New Harbinger, really through ACT people who sort of rely a lot on metaphor as language in an experiential way that allows uh people to make contact with thoughts, feelings, or sensations that they might be experiencing and struggling with in other areas of life without the stickiness of those often like really personal charged or fraught situations that are often hard to maneuver inflexibly. So like in ACT, there's the passengers on the bus metaphor where the person is imagining that they're like driving a bus and there's a bunch of like monsters on the bus and they're going toward like the thing that they're trying to get to their valued direction or whatever. And the monsters are like, turn back, you know, you're no good. You're never going to make it, you know, get off the road. What do you think you're doing? And, and, uh, and then the person is sort of supposed to imagine like, are they able to sort of continue to drive toward their destination, even with all these monsters as an, as a way to sort of like give them access to something that they can use later when they're thinking about say, like avoiding a social situation because they feel like nervous about that or something like that. And as I find that like looking at images, obviously I work with tarot and I also work with like image in story myths and folk tales and legends and stuff like that um, helps me to, uh, have a similar kind of access, but also just to like understand 
complex ideas. Like as for me personally, like I'm trying to dig more into like philosophy and religion and areas that I'm not really well versed in and I don't have any like formal background in. Um, and so, yeah, I think like metaphor in my case, uh, visual metaphor is a way to just sort of access these varying degrees of potential. Again, that idea of potential and kind of like prime myself or whoever I'm working with to be able to access those things that maybe I or they wouldn't be able to um, maybe even to perceive before, let alone use, but that it's sort of a way to like practice something. And again, I think for me, a lot of times that is just like, I'm trying to understand uh, an idea. And then if I am looking at a visual metaphor that's helping me grapple with the idea, it kind of can help me understand it a bit better in a way that's uh, not just intellectual. Mm -hmm. um, wonderful. Um, what are cliches about tarot you would like to disrupt? I just think there are so many ways to work with tarot. Um, I, I'm really like still unpacking what I'm up to from like what I've thought of myself as being up to over the years, like, which I think comes from like many years of like believing tarot cards are sort of like meant for this or that or whatever, uh, what a tarot card reader does or is supposed to do or says or, you know, whatever. Um, like even the idea that the only way to work with tarot is to pull cards. Like really the main way that I use the cards is really like working with the images um, in some of the ways I've talked about already. But as a way to like categorize and process ideas that I've encountered over the years. Like they're almost like they're like mnemonic devices a little bit to help me remember and visualize uh, concepts that I don't want to forget about if, because I'm reading things and I'm, and I'm wanting to remember them. So I might tuck it into a notebook about each of the cards and say, you know, here's an idea to file under, you know, the world card or the Empress card or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just that there's a lot you can do with them and you can be creative and you don't have to uh, stick with, the formats that you've inherited about what tarot is for yeah awesome i have to ask what's your favorite deck favorite card and why <laughs> <laughs> or do you even have one yeah um i've used uh pamela coleman smith the rider Waite smith deck primarily um i just like never get tired of it hmm. uh and I have a I have a copy of the deck that a friend found in like a an antique shop in in the Bay in the East Bay in the Bay Area, and it's like they're like matte and they don't have like the little uh, they're just really really cool. It's like a vintage deck, and um, I, but lately I've been using the Toth deck, which um, is very weird and totally like different, hmm. um, and it's still like the seventy eight card format, but. Um, I'm trying to like learn that one a little bit better. So that's what I've been working with. Favorite card? I don't really have a favorite card. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I had a, I, I. Somebody asked me recently, and I said Ace of Cups, and now I've moved on. So I, I don't, I don't have one. I'm just like it's whatever one I'm really, whatever one is matching up with an idea that's really exciting me at the moment, probably. Which right now I'm not sure what that would be. Right on. <laughs> Uh, what questions come up most often in your work with tarot? Yeah, um, so many different things. And, and actually, like, I think um, most of the time when I work with someone with tarot, like I mentioned the divinational interviews, mm -hmm. it, with that, I actually, I ask people to come with like a statement about just like an area that they want to be interviewed about. So it's not in question form. But, but I'll say like, I get a lot of, academics that are like trying to get out of academia <laughs> and like struggling with like yeah. not knowing how to like 
take what they've worked so, so, so hard yeah. for and often, which is like very, very specialized and like move into the world and like offer, you know, there's just like so much in that experience. Like I, I've been really surprised by how many people in that particular situation have consulted uh, the, the, tarot, the tarot for support. Right. That's awesome. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm sure people are curious. What would you suggest to listeners that would like to learn more about incorporating, incorporating tarot in their work? I think just like studying meaning making in whatever form that is, like whatever your way of study is and whatever your like mode of meaning making is, like get a deck of cards, do what feels natural. Definitely don't take it too seriously. Something I've been, um, I've been teaching a workshop called Deconstructing the Tarot, which is uh, nice. essentially like people are um, bringing a guidebook and pulling a card and then doing a deconstructive reading on the interpretation in the book. And people have been bringing my book, which has been really interesting to see people that deconstruct and pull apart my writing and the things that were at work behind my back when I was writing uh, those interpretations, which has been really cool. But like, you can kind of do that. You can uh, get a guidebook by someone who's writing you either really like or even just can tolerate and then sort of like deconstruct the hell out of it, you know, pull it apart, see what they were missing or not seeing or assuming. Um, how might that change the meaning of a card? Because I actually think that that could be a way, like if you're a therapist or if you're someone who's interested in uh, like just unpacking meaning with people that you're working with, you can like through doing that, you can kind of just develop a comfort level with working with those images so that you could support someone else who, if you're pulling cards in sessions or some, something like that, where you can kind of, okay, cool. We can, uh, we can take seriously the, the preconceived ideas we have about what these cards mean, but we can also really have a lot of comfort with challenging them with, with finding openings, with uh, going beyond what we're being told these mean in a way that's going to be useful and preferred for, you know, us or whoever. Wonderful. All right, a couple more questions. Uh, I like to ask this of all my guests, and that's what book, ideas, thinkers, art, films are capturing your attention these days? I love this question, and this is one of my favorite questions that you ask people. And often when I listen to the podcast, I, I'm so excited to hear, and I, I sometimes I think, oh, if I'm ever on this podcast, what will I, <laughs> what will I say? Here you are. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am. Um, so I'm reading a lot of narrative stuff mm. for the training, um, which I really enjoy reading. Uh, but outside of that, I've mostly been reading like feminist uh, constructive theologians who are like applying deconstructive strategies to like find openings in these like taken for granted uh, meanings of Western Christianity. So uh, Grace Jansen is one who has a book called Becoming Divine toward a feminist philosophy of um, religion. And she's uh She's challenging the centrality of belief in religious philosophy and just sort of saying like, well, what if we center becoming instead of belief? What if instead of like evidence and mm -hmm. how can we prove that God exists and all mm -hmm. of a sudden like we center something mm -hmm. totally else and sounds very, very Foucauldian. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. And so it's really, really cool. So her, Catherine Keller is another theologian that I'm really into. Um, and Shelley Rambo, who I mentioned as well, who I read her book, Spirit and Trauma, like a couple of years ago, but I'm still... I'm still engaging it. Um, so yeah, mostly them. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. And, uh, you know, and I know people are going to want to find you. How, how do they, I know you have a sub stack. How, how can people find you if they want to see what you're up yeah. to? Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, I have a website, which is just my name.com, jessicador.com. And I do have a sub stack and I'm writing there weekly and monthly. Uh, there's a free 
monthly offering. The, the newsletter is called Offerings, um, and they're available in text and audio. So it's usually just an essay each week, and it's paired with a tarot card. Um, and uh, yeah, that's on Substack, just my name. If you search me there, Offerings is the name of the newsletter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it. I'm on social media too, on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm kind of like trying to be less there uh, or x i'm sorry i'm on x and yeah, i'm not yeah, saying that i'm on twitter and instagram <laughs> <laughs> okay wonderful well thank you jessica i really appreciate you making the time and sharing your work with us and i'm sure the listeners are going to love it so thanks for coming thank you all right that's our show hopefully you enjoyed that as much as i did uh thank you jessica again for coming on uh come find me everybody or actually if you could rate and review this show wherever you're listening to it on itunes or whatever that's how we get in front of people please share jessica's work with others Uh, and please come find me on the socials the radical therapist on instagram Uh, i am on threads now but i don't know how active i'm going to be on that but I am on threads. Um, and then there's a Facebook page, the Radical Therapist Facebook page. So come check that out. And if you want to send me a message, the Radical Therapist at gmail.com. And remember, I will be at the LA Art Book Fair sun- Friday, August 11th, Sunday, August 13th. So if you're in the Southern California area, come visit me. And as always, thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>